For the New York State AFL-CIO, I'm Darcy Wells, and this is Union Strong. 12-year-old boy in the hospital tonight after a horrible fall down an elevator shaft. Why an elevator at the Happy Ice Factory there unexpectedly dropped today. Suzanne Hart, a 41-year-old executive at the advertising firm Young & Rubicom, was entering one of the lobby's 13 elevators when the door suddenly closed on her trailing There have been several elevator-related deaths throughout New York State over the past few years and far more injuries. Sometimes do people ride in the elevators, more oftentimes to the mechanics working on the elevators. The most recent elevator death took place just five months ago in Manhattan. This morning, a horrific nightmare and a search for answers. 30-year-old Sam Wiesbrin was tragically killed Thursday after the elevator he was riding in, this 23-story luxury building in Manhattan, suddenly dropped. On this podcast, we're talking about elevator safety and the passage and signing of legislation to improve elevator safety. It has finally happened. And joining us in the studio to talk about the Elevator Safety Act is Mike Halpin with the International Union of Elevator Constructors Local One. Mike, welcome to the Union Strong podcast. Thank you, Darcy. It's a pleasure to be here. And congratulations. This has been a long haul, like 10 years to get this? It's it's been a nine-year fight. We first introduced in June of, of 2011. And since then, we've we've moved forward and are glad to have passed the legislature this year and been signed by the governor just a few days ago. So we started the show with um, some um, upsetting sound from news clips talking about deaths and accidents. Um, And I I would assume that your local must kind of keep track of how many accidents there have been, or do you have a handle on that? Yeah, we do. We, you know, typically just do following the news and so forth. We've, We've gathered some information on that. Um, and largely the problems of like, particularly the elevator passenger fatalities have been in buildings that were serviced by contractors that, that do not participate in the type of education and training that the law will call for. So it'll up the standards. And, you know, what's, what's particularly of interest in that is that probably 80% of the contractors in New York state do participate in the education and training that, that the law calls for. However, the vast, vast majority of the accidents and fatalities are happening in that small 20% sector of the industry that does not do the education and training. So this will not only make the workers safer, it'll make the public safer. And, you know, we feel it's a really good thing for the state. We even had something, uh, a pretty horrific accident happen in our own building. We have offices here in Albany and then in New York City on um, Broadway. This was in 2016 in the summer. And we had staff there when uh, the the elevator was being, maintenance was being done. And one of the workers yeah, lost you, part of his arm. In general, you don't realize how horrific these accidents can be until you're personally exposed to it in some mm-hmm. way, shape or form. And I think the video in the New York Post of the... Uh, the recent fatality opened a lot of eyes to how horrific and painful yeah, that was these, chilling. these incidents can be. And, um, you know, so it's it's very important that folks be trained properly to work on this equipment. So we talked about how long it took. You said nine years. What When you think of something like this that is about safety and there shouldn't really be a cost to the state, right? Why would it take so long? So in the... Eight years we tried with the Senate being controlled by the Republicans. The Republicans had interests that were more important to them than the safety of workers in the elevator industry and the safety of the elevator riding public. So it wasn't a priority for them. Correct. So that's changed. And I think one of the things people 
I was surprised to learn over the years, and probably people are, would be interested in knowing, is that you didn't need to have a license until this law, right, to no. to work on these elevators. Yeah, you don't, you don't need to have a license. Uh, you didn't need to have a license, and going forward, you will. One of the the funniest conversations I had in the early days of trying to push this legislation, I went in and met with Senator uh, Gustavo Rivera, and I was explaining to him you know, that it would require education and training for elevator mechanics. It would require inspections on elevators around the state. And he basically said, uh, we don't do this already. Right. <laughs> well, that would be the reaction of most people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, who hasn't been in an elevator? Yeah. You know, and then you, you assume that it's it's maintained properly and that the people installing it and, and maintaining it would have license and training. So, yeah, that is kind of shocking to hear. So um, until now, th there was no training requirements for the mechanics who work on the elevators and no license required. Talk a little bit about what this law is going to do and what it's going to require moving forward. So what this law is going to do is, is first of all, it's going to take the choice of being a responsible contractor or not being a responsible contractor in the area of education and training away from away from individuals. You're now going to be mandated to be a responsible contractor in the area of education and training. And, and workers will go through some 8,000 hours of on-the-job training as well as some 600-plus classroom hours to, uh, to achieve the license. You were an elevator operator yourself, a constructor? I was an elevator mechanic, yeah. Mechanic. I, I, did, uh, I did some construction. I was mostly in the maintenance and repair end. Did you see, how long did you do that? I did that for the better part of 26, 27 years. Did you see accidents along the way in, in your work experience? So I have not directly seen accidents. I've, uh, I was very fortunate, but um, I was near accidents. You know, like I would, I would be on a job site and one of my coworkers might've gotten injured on another job site nearby. And, you know, it's, it's, it truly is tragic. I mean, I've been around fatalities as well, where work, where workers, you know, die due to an elevator accident, and to realize the impact that has. I mean, it's like you know, a family all of a sudden is minus their their breadwinner, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, it's a good trade. So that you know, the health benefits, right. the retirement security, all all of that gets washed away in a matter of minutes. You know. And then the accident that it referenced at the top of the show, too, where the 30-year-old was killed in Manhattan, you know, just a few months ago. Um, so they still have that. Elevator's not even operating, I think, right? They're relying on just another one, and that one's even having problems. They still have issues there. Yes, there was a, there was a news report yesterday that, sh that showed that there's still big problems in that building. Residents at 344 Third Avenue, known as the Manhattan Promenade, are reminded every day that this is the elevator where 30-year-old Sam Wasebrin died in August. He was heading out to work when the elevator suddenly plunged without warning, killing him. Ever since, residents are confined to use one working elevator, which the city has mandated has an attendant at all times. Everyone's kind of on high alert and extra cautious just to make sure everything's safe. But complaints to the Department of Buildings show it's not 100%. In October, one wrote... The elevator where the gentleman was killed is still out of service and the adjacent elevator has some, some problems that, are being, that need to be addressed. Um, I've actually had some some conversations with the uh, the leader at a tenant group over in that building, and uh, they say, you know, to this day, there's still people who are walking the stairs in that building out of fear. I think after seeing the video, I saw the video mm -hmm. in the post too. I I would be doing the same thing. So how long is it going to be now with this law passed that will actually people? Is there like a a date when they'll now from now on you have to have that license? Like when does all that take place? So in on January first of twenty twenty two is when the license will be in play, but there's going to be a phase, and so like the, the, 
The law also creates an elevator safety and advisory board. So that board is going to form and, and they'll start working with the state on doing regulations and rules. Um, and the board will also, the, the law calls for a study to be done on inspections in the areas of the state outside of New York City to see how inspections are being done, if they're being done properly. And then from there, we, we may take the law to another level and, and mandate the inspections in, in the, uh, the areas outside the city. So you, you feel pretty confident this is going to make a big difference with elevator safety and the confidence of people being able to use them? Yeah. I mean, there's been studies done that show an average of a 30 percent decrease in, in incidents in states that have this law. Mm-hmm. Um, some states have shown as much as an 80 percent decrease in incidents. And those studies are available because most states already have this. This is one place we were lagging behind, right? Yeah. Yeah. We've uh, fallen short here for a while. And, uh, you know, I, I actually have to really thank the AFL-CIO and, and a couple of trades in the labor movement because, you know, moving forward on this was different. There were, there were challenges early on, um, a lot of labor stakeholders in the elevator industry. And it was, you know, a little challenging getting everybody on board and making mm-hmm. sure everybody's interests were covered. And, um, you know, Mario Salento was very instrumental in bringing those groups together and making sure we got we could get to a piece of legislation that made everybody comfortable and we were able to, you know, move forward. And, uh, you know, along those lines, I mean, we had to work very, very closely with the IBW, particularly Local 3, uh, the operating engineers, and the carpenters. And uh, very cooperative, all mm-hmm. of them. And it was really a pleasure working with them to move this forward. Right, because they have their own responsibility. They're individual members. Uh, so whatever their interests are going to be involved in this. Sure. Um, so talk to me a little bit about Local um, One's apprenticeship program. So our apprenticeship program is 144 classroom hours per year um, for four years. You, you test out each year on the uh, curriculum you took in that year, and you also take a, a cumulative mechanics exam at the end of those four years. So it's all-encompassing. To be a really good a- elevator mechanic, you need the skill set that often encompass several trades. You need a portion of the skill set of the electrician. You need a portion of the skill set of a steam fitter or a plumber, and you need a portion of the skill set of, of the carpenter. So it's it's a trade that you really need a lot of a lot of tools in your arsenal mm-hmm. to do it safely, to keep yourself safe, and to keep the general public safe. So it's very important. And you're constantly working at great heights, um, exposed to, we're oftentimes exposed to what OSHA refers to as the fatal four of electrician, electrocution, um, fall, crushed by, and struck by, okay. we can often be exposed to all of them at the same time. The technology changes very, very rapidly. You so stay up to date on all that. Absolutely. And that's one of the things the law will call for is the continuing education and training will assure that mechanics stay on top of their game as the industry changes. So as far as the cost not being an issue with getting this passed, that's because of the licensing fee will cover that? Is that the idea or is it not that... Black and white. So, so yeah, it's it's a law that will be paid for by by, for lack of a better term, the the players in the game. You know, mm-hmm. so if you're if you're an elevator contractor, you'll have to pay for an elevator contractor's license. If you're an elevator uh, mechanic, you'll have to pay for your elevator mechanic's license. So, like right now, there's no there's no cost to building owners other than their traditional uh, maintenance contract to the elevate with the elevator contractor. And as I said earlier, it's an industry where approximately 80% of the industry is doing this education and training already. Um, so there'll be very little, you know, it's already being paid for. 
So the 80% would include members from Local 1, I would assume, for the most part, right? Because they're going through this rigorous training. Or, or have you had members involved in some of these accidents? So our members have been involved in some of these accidents. And what makes this law very, very helpful is in the, in the world of the labor movement, you know, oftentimes you, you know, we're organizing new contractors, we're organizing non-union contractors. And when a non-union contractor, you know, comes into the fold, you don't necessarily know whether his mechanics got any type of education mm-hmm. and training. So then you're faced with a choice of, do I organize this contractor and bring more members into the labor movement and, and you know, pa- possibly push his mechanics out, which you really don't want to do. You know, right. you want everybody represented and everybody have the same opportunity. So oftentimes we bring these we bring these folks into the fold, we'll sign the contractor, and we'll work on education and training from that point forward. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they may come into the organization without the education and training, right. which exposes, you know, exposes both them and the uh, the riding public until such time as they're, cha- as mm-hmm. they're trained. So Okay. And then so as far as recruitment for applicants, is that open now for apprenticeship in yeah, your in, local? In Local 1, uh, yes, apprenticeship applications are being taken on January 11th, Saturday. Okay. That'll be online. Mm-hmm. Um, and the law also affects, there's some, there's some um, six locals in New York State. And so it's all of them that are included in this as well. We have, you know, locals in Buffalo, Rochester, Poughkeepsie, Syracuse, Albany, as well as New York City. So it's going to cover the state. And, you know, another thing we had to do in in building this law and in, in drafting it and so forth is take care of the interests of all of the individual locals in the state as well. And all of the business managers and business reps around the state were very, very helpful in passing this law. And, uh, you know, kudos to them. They were very, very helpful in getting this passed. Do you need, do do you find there's a lack of interest in getting into this industry or is it um, good enough jobs that there's, uh, it's tough to get into the apprenticeship? It's, yeah, we'll get far, far more applicants than we'll be able to take in. It's, it's, it's a good, it's a good trade. It's becoming more and more known to be a good trade. Mm-hmm. This should use the word elevate, but this should <laughs> elevate that as well. Then I would think when people start hearing about this and know they're going to be properly trained for the job they're going to be expected to do, I got to think that's going to generate more interest in your program. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure it will generate interest. And, um, you know, we look forward to that because the better the better the applicant we can get, mm-hmm. you know, the stronger our trade will be. So if we, if we get a larger pool of applicants- You're going to get we, the best. Yeah. And then uh, one other question, maybe this is a selfish one, because I actually got stuck in an elevator a couple of years ago over at the plaza. And it's, you know, it was like a good 15 minutes. It felt like an hour and 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. But um, if the, for the us, the public, when we get into these elevators, is there anything or will this require anything to be posted on the latest inspection? Or is there anything we should look for to know we're in a safe elevator that we're using? So nothing, nothing more will be posted than already is. And, that, and that's kind of depends on the locality. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes the inspection certificates can be placed either in the elevator or in the building manager's office. So if you want to see, you know, an inspection certificate or proof of an inspection, you would probably need to talk to your building manager about mm-hmm. that. Um, but a good rule of thumb for, you know, folks is if you get stuck in an elevator, stay there. Mm-hmm. Just stay there and let let people will come and get you out. You Which know, is what not... happened in our case. Yeah. yeah. But it was crowded. Yeah. And people were getting nervous yeah. Yeah, because be... you don't know when that end's coming. Sure. It can, it can be uncomfortable. But the, I mean, there are incidents and well-documented incidents where 
you know, people were in an elevator that was stuck and, and made a move to get out and were, and were killed in the process. Right. That's what not to do. Yeah. I can't imagine what that must be like for you getting in an elevator because you know what can go wrong. You've seen what can go wrong. Yeah, You know, absolutely. and it kind of makes you look around, know your surroundings and whatever, pay closer attention, which we should all be doing in our daily lives anyway, I guess. Sure. But anyway, uh, thank you very much for coming on the program, Mike Halpin, and uh, congratulations on getting this done. And uh, we look forward to seeing this, this, this training taking place and these requirements, and it's going to be safer for all of us. So thank you. Thank you, Darcy. Joining me now on the podcast is our digital director, Kevin Eitzman. Hi, Kevin. How you doing? Good. Hi, Darcy. So that Elevator Safety Act is good news for all of us. Uh, it's not just for elevators. It's for escalators. And it, we can all take some comfort in knowing that, that the uh, education and training and the fact that the mechanics have to be licensed will be better for all of us riding on those. Absolutely. I, we can all take a, a little deep breath and, and uh, feel a little safer knowing that we have the properly licensed and trained technicians working on those now. And it's great to see that they're hiring all the time and, and bringing in new folks uh, to learn the trade. We'll have uh, their website on our uh, show description so that you can click over there and see what they're all about and see when they're next uh, taking apprentices. And we know like with tradespeople, the unionized trades folks are always going to have that better training and more experience than others. So that's good to know. But this broadens it out and really puts that um, high level of expectation on others as well. So that's good. Absolutely. We used to call that union pride that no matter that's what right. the job was, you were going to do the job right and it's always good knowing that they're going to be uh, on the job. All right. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Darcy. Thanks for listening to the Union Strong podcast. If you like what you're hearing, you can subscribe and give us a rating. This has been a production of the New York State AFL-CIO. Our president is Mario Salento. Our secretary treasurer is Terry Melvin. We're a federation of 3,000 unions representing 2.5 million union members, retirees, and their families with one goal, to raise the standard of living and quality of life of all working people. We keep New York State unions strong by fighting for better wages, better benefits, and better working conditions. For more information on the labor movement in New York, visit nysaflcio.org. Until next time, stay union and stay strong.